Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week. When a 14-year-old boy viciously kills a 13-year-old girl in a small community and the two are classmates, it is hard to figure out what justice will look like. But on the day that jury selection was to start in a Florida courtroom, that boy, now 16, made a shocking decision. The trial was halted because he decided to plead guilty. But first, for more than a decade, the tiny skull of a little girl and some of her bones sat in an evidence locker in Alabama. Unclaimed and unnamed. The only thing police were certain of, that this five or six-year-old girl had a very bad life. She for sure had been beaten. 15 bones were broken. She was likely left blind in one eye because of the abuse. And it appears that she was starved. Because there was no report of this little girl missing, there was no way to identify her remains until recently. Using new DNA technology, the girl was identified through her parents' DNA. And her father is currently sitting in a jail cell charged with her murder. We are recording this on Thursday, February 9th of 2023. Our guest today is Kristen Middleman, one of the founders and the chief business development officer at Othram Labs. Othram Labs is like no other DNA lab in the country. They take the toughest cases with the most degraded DNA samples and they build profiles to help solve cases, scores of cases. Kristen, welcome back. We are so excited to have you back on the program. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It really means the world. Thank you. Oh, this case, you know, y- you and your husband founded this lab. And, and I love the story that you two met <laughs> when you were working on your PhDs. Uh, you know, uh, I love it when, you know, uh, high functioning, really brilliant brainiacs meet and fall in love. <laughs> and and he um, he emailed me and he said, I think this is a case, Anna, for you. And it was... Absolutely. This is exactly the kind of case we need to cover. We need to talk about children who are lost. We need to talk about the abuse against children, and we need to talk about justice. And you said something before we started uh, recording about her not having a voice in all of this. That's absolutely true. She was voiceless. Um, No one knew she was even missing because 
usually when there's a small child involved in such a violent crime, the person that commits the crime is the person that would report them missing. They they entrust their lives to parents. And if the parents are the ones that do wrong by them, then unless someone saw that child being uh, placed where he placed that body at that trailer park by that riverbed, there was no evidence of this crime. Um, and in this case, it's even more horrific than that in the sense that the mom thought her daughter was alive. She continued to pay child support all these years. Um, she, in her interview, said that she wanted to do right by her daughter, even though she didn't have custody. Um, she wanted her to know that she continued to pay for her and that she continued to love her. And um, it broke my heart to watch that interview. Um, the, the entire story breaks my heart. Um but it also shows and, and in a very big way highlights why this DNA technology is necessary, because without it, this little child would have never gotten her name back. She would have never been able to rest in peace and have her family that does care about her and does love her be able to visit her and, and know exactly what happened to her and get justice. I mean, at this point, um, her father and her father's current wife have been charged um, and they both have been extradited from Florida to Alabama and they will stand trial. And, and I believe that's necessary to get justice for these victims that remain voiceless through the evil of mankind. Oh, that's for sure. The evil of mankind without question. So we're going to get into the details of this and then how you all got involved and, and what the problem was with trying to identify her remains. So our first case, this is out of Opelika, Alabama, where the remains of baby Jane Doe have been identified as a Moore Wiggins. That identification led to the arrest of her father and stepmother, if we can even call her that. So when the skull and bones of the little girl were found behind a trailer in Opelika, this is back in January 28th of 2012, no one knew who she was because she wasn't reported missing. Now, what's interesting here, Kristen, is that because she didn't fit any other missing child case, although they went through something like 15,000 cases to see if maybe she was a match, Ordinarily, we think because of the progression of DNA, we would think, oh, she would have been identified immediately. What, what was it in this case that made that impossible at the time? So the, it's, it's a couple of things. First, she was the victim, right? And so a lot of the DNA work that's been done, a lot of the traditional forensic DNA testing relies on a known perpetrator database known as CODIS and or a missing persons database where someone reports someone missing and, and allows their DNA to be entered into the database in order to have that match. Unfortunately, since she wasn't reported missing and since she's not a perpetrator, that kind of testing doesn't usually yield a result for a victim in these types of cases. Wow. And that's exactly when our technology and why our technology was built. When you don't have a direct match with normal STR testing, you can use what we call forensic grade genome sequencing. And we make a DNA profile that has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of markers. And then we can upload that to genealogical databases consented for law enforcement use. And what's amazing about that is you can get really distant relationships, six cousins, fifth cousins, fourth cousins, these really, really, really distant relationships, but they can guide you to where this person belongs in a family 
country and point to the parents of this child, which is exactly what happened in this situation. And so all of us have someone in the database that that is related to us by some degree. And so being able to look at those more distant relationships allows you to be able to identify and infer identity. And then that lead is returned back to the investigators and it's their job to contextualize it and, and figure out if it makes sense that this little girl could be the person where we think it is. So what happened in this case is they questioned the father and the stepmother first because that was the DNA led to that side of the family first. And unfortunately, they both said they had never heard of this child. They that is crazy. No That's right. insane to deny they her, to deny her existence. Yeah, she, they she never knew what child they're talking about. And so... The immediate thought, the investigators at the time and, and even us was, oh, my gosh, that he must have, you know, had an, a, a one night stand or something. And the mother never told him that she was pregnant. And now she must be responsible for this crime, because what would you think at that point? He, right. he claimed he had no idea. And so we started to look for the mother. And so um, that's when the investigation continued. And um the matches on the mother's side were filtered through um, through the genealogist that worked the case. And then she returned that lead to the investigator and said, this is who we think the, the mother is. And so when the mother was questioned, she actually produced documentation that she was paying child support and that the father and the stepmother that were previously questioned had gained custody of the child when she was three years old through a Virginia court. And that's when the investigator realized and instantly realized what had actually happened and who the perpetrator was in this case. And then they had to go back and find find them and get an arrest warrant. And obviously the rest we know. What's incredible about that is that he denied, allegedly he denied that this little girl even existed, that a more even existed. But the fact that there is a court record that exists that shows that the court gave full custody to him, the father, is extraordinary. Like, what kind of a lie is this? Because it can be completely proven to be a lie. It's, he thought it's absurd. he got away with it. He thought no one was going to come forward looking for this child and he would get away with it. And I think even even when DNA pointed towards him, he knew it only pointed towards him and they didn't know who the mom was because they asked him and he wouldn't disclose. And so he thought he was going to get away with it again. And it just he was OK with that. And I mean, obviously, a monster would do the things that happened to this child. It's a horrific crime. Honestly, in the four years that we've worked, you know, over a thousand cases here at Othram, this is one that bothered me the most. Um, like you said, this child was brutally be beaten. Her bones were broken. Her occipital bone was broken and she was likely blinded in that eye. She was missing teeth. She was malnutritioned. Um, it, it's horrible, horrible. I'm so grateful that DNA is definitive. It's a way to remove doubt from investigations and, and to truly um, prove someone's involvement in something. And in this case, give more her name back, give her a resting spot, a real funeral and justice. Yes, yes, absolutely. What's incredible is to think that in 2012, when her remains were found and 
Police think she may have been dead maybe a year. It's unclear. They don't know exactly when she was murdered. That back then, you all didn't even exist. Your lab didn't exist at that point. So it's amazing to think of, we talk about this a lot, how the technology changes so quickly, but but the fact that they went back, that went to you because now you existed and you were able to change the trajectory of this investigation is amazing. So the father here is 50-year-old Lamar Vickerstaff. Now, he's been charged with murder. His wife, 53-year-old Ruth Vickerstaff, has been charged with failure to report a missing child. I don't know if those charges are going to change for her, but that's what she's been charged with. And then, as you said, it was Amore's mother, Sherry Wiggins, who lost custody of this baby girl and the fact that she was paying these two child support just undoes me, undoes me. As you, you said, she was paying up until that week when she found out that her baby yeah, girl was, was current. There. Yeah, she was current on her child support payments. That's what she said in her interview. And it breaks my heart. And, and she said she was trying to do right by her daughter and show her that she always loved her. And she honestly thought she was young. Um, when she had her and he was older and stable and had a relationship. And she thought that he was giving her a better home and a better life. And she was okay with that as long as she would get that contact with her child later uh, per her interview, but still wanted to, to be a part. And she said that she had fought him to have visitation, but ended up not being able to continue to fight him because her life was not stable at the time. Um, and thought that she did what was best for her child. But she said she named her Amor because she loved her. Um, it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart as a parent to even think about the situation. And I, I honestly, her mom was a victim this entire time. And she was continue, continuously victimized all the way through that last child support payment. Um, that's horrible. Yeah, it is. It, it's it. This is a crime and this is a moral injury because of all the different facets of of the victimization and, uh, of what happened here. So let's go back to the crime scene because all this will help us piece in what could be done at the time and then what you all were able to bring to the table. So the skeletal remains of Amor were found uh, along with a clump of curly hair and then a little pink shirt that had little heart-shaped buttons on it. You know, that just gives you an idea of the innocence. We're talking about a little girl here. Her remains were examined at the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia, and they determined that she was, this is what they knew at the time, that she was a girl, she was black, and somewhere between the age of four and seven. The autopsy revealed all these fractures, which the medical examiner said, Kristen, was these, the the fractures, the bone breaks were not new, that they had healed over, which means um, it was repetitive abuse. Yeah. Horrific. Horrific. So what they have not revealed yet is what her cause of death is. How was she murdered? We do not know the answer to that yet, at least not publicly. And again, the idea that she was malnourished. Um, they believe that the murder occurred sometime between... Uh, 2010 and 2011. But again, they don't know for sure. So it wasn't until January of 2022 that the remains were sent to Othram's lab where you all created um, this DNA profile. 
what um, you worked with a, a very famous uh, forensic genealogist on this project. Yes, before we were consulted as the lab, Barbara Ray Venter was um, a genealogist that had offered her service to Obelika PD to help solve this case. And so um, initially we were told that when we build the profile, we needed to send it to Barbara, um, upload it to de genealogical databases, and then Barbara would work through the matches. And she graciously did so. She is one of the genealogists that worked on the Golden State Killer case. She is has done this um, since the inception of sort of this forensic genetic genealogy, and um, and it was on. It was great to get to work with her on this case. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, using uh, each of your strengths to really solve. A murder. And it was beyond solving the murder. It was also identifying the victim because you can't very well solve this one until you know who's been killed. So Sherry Wiggins, this would be Amora's mother, gave birth in January of 2006. A few months later, that would be in May of that year, the biological father, Lamar, marries his second wife, Ruth. So it's Lamar and Ruth who are charged in this crime. In 2009, when the girl is about three years old, the mother loses custody to Lamar and his wife, ordered to pay child support. She thinks she's doing the best she can uh, for the child. And then it's in 2012. So the last time the mother sees the daughter is 2009. 2012 is when the child is found dead. And again, but no one knew who she was and they couldn't figure it out. So um, I just find this fascinating about the fact that you found the father first. He didn't, it, it's... It's interesting when you're sharing this information, like you identify the DNA, then the genealogist figures out backtracks from the family down to the child, and then you're all working with law enforcement. Um, it is your research and your analysis that makes it possible for the authorities to go forward with their investigation. Um, and that to me is the most interesting thing of your relationship here with police. Absolutely. Um you know, we we come in in investigations every single time when there's a DNA dead end. There's DNA left at the crime scene, whether it's perpetrator or victim DNA or both. And we come in when that DNA can't be assigned an identity. And so the case has gone cold because how do you investigate who some who killed someone or what happened to this child, for example, or anyone that is found as unidentified remains if you don't know who they are? You can't piece together the last few weeks of their lives. You can't ask questions. You don't know who family or friends would have been that would have seen her, where she could have possibly been. Um, and so there's no way to start that investigation. That's our job, to come in and and sort of ascertain that identity so that law enforcement can initiate that investigation into what happened to this person. Is it this person? They confirm that using standard testing. And then how what does that mean and how did that person get there? And then you get justice for them. Or if it's a perpetrator, the same thing. If you can't figure out who they are because they're not in the known perpetrator database, your, your cold case, I mean, your case goes cold. That's it. Mm -hmm. And so it's time for, for our type of testing to come into play and build one of these profiles that can give you that help to get that identity. And we don't, it, it's funny because we build these profiles that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of markers, but there's various ways to help investigations. One is to do genealogy and to go down the family tree and get the answer of who the person might be and then have the contact as it was in this case. 
but there's other ways as well. We can very quickly within several minutes do a comparison to possible known perpetrators or suspects and exclude people. We can look at biogeographical ancestry, what area of the country this family's from, all sorts of contextual clues that can help investigators possibly get enough context into their investigation, especially with other clues there to say, oh my gosh, it is this suspect and it's not this one and it's not this one. So what we do is we collect DNA information that removes uncertainty from the investigation until you finally get to that answer. And it's not necessarily always done through genealogy. One of the reasons that I think for, you know, FGG might, is a bigger field than that here at Othram. It, it We do genealogy sometimes. But honestly, what we do here at Othram is we take cases that are unsolved and we help solve them using mm -hmm. DNA technology. And so there's various mechanisms. We had a case once where we were able to identify the city which this person came from. It was unidentified remains. It was a victim. And we could not get enough matches to get down to a specific family because of the background of this population was a very difficult background to work with. So David actually did targeted ads to this tiny little place for, through Facebook and a coworker recognized the person within a few days. You don't have to solve it one way or the other. Being able to get clues from the DNA allows the investigation to move forward and allows people to get answers and hone into the right area. And I think that's something that people are now finally understanding. Um, DNA is like a flashlight. It points you to the right direction when you're really like lost or in the dark with a cold case. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Her remains were found. They were very difficult remains to work with. I, I think Othram is purpose built for these type of cases and these types of remains um, because we don't believe it's justice unless it can be given to every case. And so we have tailored our methods to work with the most intractable bones out there, the most intractable types of evidence. Like you said earlier on, we're sort of the last hope. Um, and I think that's what brings hope to me and makes this job really worth it. But yeah, I know you're passionate, Kristen. I know you're passionate. David's passionate. Um, you approach it from different perspectives. Um, but I do understand your passion because I've gotten to know you all a little bit um, over the last few years. And that's what I love about you. <laughs> what I love about you. And I think it's why why we connect. But yeah, her these bones were subjected to the water. They were by a riverbed behind this um this trailer park and she was malnutrition like you said decreasing the amounts of dna it was it was very difficult bones to work with there were so many issues and they showed a horrifying story um oh. in fact I, it was difficult for me to process that story as we knew about what was found in the bones and i was hoping that you know we would eventually find out there was some sort of you know, disorder that caused brittle bones or, or some sort of breaks. And it wasn't really someone attacking a child in this horrible sense. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But the truth is what we seek and, and not what we we hope to find out. And um, so we took these bones and it took a lot of a lot of work to get DNA from the bones and a lot of sequencing to get the right amount of data to build these profiles. And we were able to build a DNA profile that uploaded to both Family Tree DNA and GenMatch. And we're able to pass that on to Barbara Ray Venter, as you said. And she was able to um, take all those matches and point to the family for a more 
Yeah, amazing. And, you know, so you shared with us how when investigators first went to Lamar, the father, he and his wife denied that the child even existed. And then it was through the mother that there was confirmation. So here's what is amazing. The authorities go back to the father, Lamar, except this time they go through the Navy's investigative unit, NCIS. And Lamar is told you know, he, he's now stationed in Jacksonville, Florida. He's told by his boss, please report to, to the NCIS building um, on the Naval Air Station. What does he do? Police say he takes off. He goes AWOL. <laughs> what? He runs away. He runs away. A few hours later, the Jacksonville Sheriff's deputies find him. And they bring him in for an interrogation. The authorities say that he was still being very vague about the existence of Amor, of his daughter, and that he was still in, you know, denying her existence, but he was compelled to submit a DNA sample at that time. So this is an additional sample. So I presume you do this as part of, well, I guess the police do it as far as an independent investigation to get um, not to double check your homework, but to have it as part of the official police record, his DNA. Yeah. So we compared, actually, we did do the comparison swap here, I believe, where we compare the DNA to um, to the DNA found at the crime scene. And it was a parent child match. And we actually did this for not only his DNA, but also for the mother's DNA. And they were both parent child matches. So you had confirmation from both sides. Amazing. So he then um, is held in a Jacksonville jail. The wife, stepmother, also held in a Jacksonville jail. They are charged. And so they've since been extradited back to Alabama to stand trial for these charges. What, um, What investigators also found out was that even though, you know, we don't know at what age she died, but possibly five or six, that the police so far, they say, they've not been able to find any records that Amor was ever in a little preschool, in any type of school, or any medical records. It's as if she didn't exist. And what I don't understand is, if they took custody of Amor, how could the people in their lives not know of the existence of this child? What did they do with her? This question, um, this keeps me up at night. Um, I asked myself the same question. Um, it looks like they moved around from place to place. I wondered, I even asked David, do you think they told people she went back to live with her mom? Or do you think they, you know, hit her from everybody and didn't allow her to see people? I don't know. Um, I mean, I just can't imagine. I hope that these kind of questions are answered. You know that if you and I are sitting here thinking about this still, um, definitely her family is thinking about this still. And mm-hmm. I'm sure they want to know the answers to all that. Um, I, I, I hope that the trial uh, brings a lot of those answers. I, I'm assuming that all those questions will be asked and a lot of that will be covered. I hope so. So they were arrested on January 17th of 2023. Lamar charged with felony murder and then Ruth with failure to report a missing child. On the 26th, they were extradited back to Opelika and booked into the Lee County Jail. Now, what's interesting here also is that Lamar grew up in Opelika. 
This is where his family's from. His family's still there. He went to high school there. He has roots there. And so when the Opelika police chief held a news conference with his detectives to discuss not only learning the identity of Amor, but also the arrests, he became incredibly emotional. And this is a clip from the CBS station in Baltimore. Since that day, David Jane, sorry, has been a part of our OPD family. I think when you listen to the police chief get so choked up about this case, I think it says everything about how the community has reacted to the horrific details of Amor's life and death. 100%. And honestly, every single time we work one of these cases, we think of the family that needs the answers, of course. We think of the victims that deserve justice, of course. But one of the things that I've seen time and time again is these investigators. They are so involved in their cases. They carry them with them. They become part of their life every single day for decades. And I can't imagine not being able to get the answers to close that case. Um, and I know that this is the case with with Opelika and Amor's case. Um, everyone was very invested in trying to to do right by this little girl and get her name back and get justice for her. And this meant the world to them. And they need it just as much as the family needs the answers, just as much as we need the answer for working on it. It's it becomes part of your life. And um, in fact, someone here at Othram said at our Christmas party, this isn't a job. It's a way of life. And it's the truth. This is not a job. It's a way of life. It is. It becomes part of us. And every time we get the truth for one of these stories and we get to name someone and help in any way. It is a partnership between law enforcement and us. It is a partnership between everyone that ever touched this case, whether they helped solve it on help solved it or not. Like you said, this technology didn't exist at all when her body was found. The fact that evidence was kept maintained so that it can be used the minute that it was out there. This is new technology. This is something that has only been around for a few years and only has been reliable or at least publicly known to be reliable for the last few years. That's incredible, right? And yeah. this tiny little police department in Opelika, Alabama, decided they wanted to try anything to solve this case. And, and this was sort of one of their last resorts. And it was not an investigation they didn't take part of. They called us, they called our case manager, David, often. They talked about it often. They communicated with us continuously until the remains built a profile and were able to bring these answers to light. And that's incredible. It is. It really is. Now, the bond hearing for Ruth Vickerstaff was on January 27th of this year, and it was set at $10,000. The judge, however, denied Lamar bond during his hearing on January 30th, citing that the child's unreported long-term injuries and Lamar's attempt to take off and go AWOL meant that he was a flight risk. So th that's why he was denied any bond here. Now, here's what's also interesting about this case and Alabama specifically. So when the judge in Alabama denied Lamar Vickerstaff bail, it was done under a new law that was passed by the voters in November called Anaya's Law, named after Anaya Blanchard, who was kidnapped and murdered in 2019 by a man 
who is out on bond for violent offenses. So the people of Alabama said, not again on our watch. And they passed this law, which gives the judge more leeway so he or she can deny bail on specifically cases involving children where they are either murdered or they are severely abused. And this, they believe, based on everything I read in Alabama, they believe this is the first major case to use Anaya's law. Two little girls who have suffered, each beyond the grave, helping each other. I'm glad that law was in place, and I'm glad that he doesn't have the opportunity to run again, because to me, it would make sense that he would run if he thought he would be held accountable for this as he tried the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And we will watch this case to see what happens with this. Our next case is out of Jacksonville, Florida. This is a case that we've been covering here on the podcast for almost two years. This is the case of a 14-year-old boy who is accused of stabbing to death his 13-year-old classmate in the small community of Durban Crossing. Now, 13-year-old Tristan Bailey was stabbed 114 times, and 49 of them were defensive wounds, according to the medical examiner. Her body was discovered on Mother's Day of May 9th of 2021, and her 14-year-old friend and class classmate Aiden Fucci was arrested and charged with her murder and when he was arrested they finally decided that they would be trying him as an adult even though he was 14 years old at the time. Also accused here is Aiden's mother who is accused of trying to destroy evidence by washing her son's bloody jeans and clothes in an attempt to cover up for him. So Kristen I know that this is not a case that you all have worked on but the idea you know about DNA, could you really wash it out of the jeans and wash it out of his clothes if he would have had, for example, any of her blood or DNA on him during this murder? Sure, DNA, I mean, people try to destroy DNA in all ways and and detergent and high heat obviously is one way to destroy DNA. Does that mean that you're going to get rid of all the DNA? No, and we need only traces amounts of DNA, DNA that you may not even think of that would be found on the victim's body. For example, we have a sex assault murder of a 14 year old girl um, that walked to school in Vegas and there were, what was left was 0.12 nanograms of DNA. That's the equivalent of 15 human cells. If I touch my hand, that's hundreds of cells. So 15 human cells from 32 years ago, a mixture between perpetrator and victim, and that was enough for us to identify the perpetrator. And so we have found you know, DNA in all sorts of places. And so can you really get rid of all DNA evidence? Probably not. And so can you try? Yes, but I don't think that it's easy. Right. Very interesting. So um, Aiden, who is now 16 years old, was about to stand trial. And we've been following this case through all of it, from the arrest to the charges. And so on the first day of jury selection, which was this Monday, this Monday, February 6th, he made the surprising move. He admitted to the murder and he entered a guilty plea in court, which means that he will serve a minimum of 40 years, possibly life in prison. And News 4 Jacksonville live-streamed this court hearing. It was such a surprise to the judge that he asked Aiden repeatedly if he understood what he was doing because he was giving up all his rights to defend himself, explain himself, whatever goes on during a trial. Here is a, a clip of that hearing. 
there's a number of rights that you're giving up. I've already talked about them a little bit, but I want to talk about them again with you, okay? You understand, again, that you have the right to a jury trial. During that trial, uh, you're entitled to be represented by an attorney. You've got attorneys who are appointed to represent you. They would have uh, been with you throughout that trial. Uh, you have the right to compel witnesses to come in and testify on your behalf. You could have testified during that trial if you wished, or you could have remained silent throughout that trial. You could have uh, required the state of Florida to prove this charge beyond a reasonable doubt. You could have presented evidence during that trial. You could have cross-examined any witnesses that the, state might, that the state might have called against you. And you also could have appealed your conviction and sentence to a higher court. You understand, once I accept your plea today, there will not be a trial, we'll pass this matter off for sentencing, and you'll be giving up all of those rights that I just described. I do, you on. We're going to play more from the hearing, but before we get to that, I want to discuss some of the evidence um, against Aiden and also how his mental state or capacity may have come into question. So again, I know that you didn't work this case, but what's interesting here is the combination of the digital forensic evidence, which, which would have been surveillance video, security video, DNA, plus the murder weapon, and plus the condition of her body. And then we later find out his DNA was found on her body. Her DNA was found on his belongings. So those things together made for a very strong case against Aiden. So Kristen, on the night that uh, Tristan disappeared, she was going out with friends in the neighborhood. And so she walked by a bunch of security cameras. At 1.14 a.m., she was seen at the community center. At 1.45, she was seen walking with Aiden on a home security camera. Then at 3.27 a.m., only Aiden is seen coming back on that same camera. He's walking quickly and he's carrying his shoes. Tristan isn't reported missing until the next morning. Her parents thought she had come home. They didn't know that she wasn't home until she didn't show up for breakfast. And that's when they realized. Then the big search begins. And it was later that evening that she was found by a neighbor in a retention pond. She was stabbed with such force. The murder weapon, a knife, was embedded in her scalp unbelievable unbelievable and so um one of the things that happened in this case was um some social media posts that were very unusual so aiden apparently became a suspect pretty early on just simply because he was seen with her that night aiden posted a, fo a photo on social media that we're going to show for all of you for those of you who are listening this is truly chilling because it's a snapchat post and it's a picture of Aiden in the back of a patrol car. And the caption is, hey, guys, has anybody seen Tristan lately? I mean, what do you what what do you do with this? Then he allegedly made statements to kids at school that he wanted to kill someone. Um, it's it's just it's so shocking. So when police went to interview him, the mother and gather his clothes, that's when they say they discovered the, the alleged destruction of the evidence. But apparently they were still able to, to gather enough against to charge him. So in a case like this, um, it's very shocking to have a young person plead guilty to murder. I think most in his world would advise him not to do it because of his age. I'm not discussing morally whether it was the right thing or wrong thing to do, Obviously, he's saving everyone a lot of pain. And there was a mountain 
of evidence against him. In, in just in your opinion, based on trials that you've seen and cases you've seen, and in when you have the combination of DNA and um, digital um, forensic evidence, do you find that the the two together are the strongest possible combination you could have for a case like this? And I, yes, and absolutely how I think every case should work. So the DNA evidence in this case is is traditional forensic DNA evidence because they had a suspect. They knew who the two people were so they can do that standard STR testing. You're not looking for a person that is unknown in either situation, whether victim or perpetrator. And so um, they're able to make that match. And then that again, that gives them a clue as to what happened and who was at the crime scene. But all the other evidence, the surveillance evidence, him walking away quickly, the blood in the sink at his house, the um, shoes that had blood on them, all that evidence put together allows the case to be so much stronger because it's no longer circumstantial or one piece of evidence. It's everything together telling a real story of in a timeline of what actually happened. Um, I think that's the hope in every investigation. Every time we return a lead and now we're actually working contemporary cases. We're no longer just solving cold cases using this new DNA technology. And as we work these contemporary investigations, it is even more important that our leads are contextualized within the reality of what is happening in the investigation and all the other evidence that is there. And I think you said earlier on that the surveillance evidence was a big deal. I think electronic evidence is always going to be key to support the DNA evidence found at the crime scene. Yeah, and that's what it sounded like. It sounded like a mountain of evidence against Aiden. So that night that he was questioned, he gave multiple interviews with multiple versions of what was going on. He said that he was with Tristan at around 1 a.m., but then she left. Things just were not making sense. Um, then he told authorities allegedly that the two got into an argument, and then he pushed her to the ground and she struck her head. But that would not explain, you know, the over 100 stab wounds. It just would not explain any of that. So, um, yes, her DNA was found on his sweatshirt, his jeans, his sneakers. Um, And then they charged. They ended up charging Aiden's mother, Crystal Smith, because she attempted to wash the blood and cover up for her son. And as you said, they even found Tristan's blood in the sink. So, you know... There's no logical explanation for her blood in the sink (laughs) at his house. There's just no explanation for that. The murder weapon, which was a folding buck knife, was later found um, in the retention pond. Just horrific. So Aiden's arrested that night, initially charged with second-degree murder, and then the charges are upgraded to first-degree murder, and he will be tried as an adult. So remember, he's 14 at the time. Now, I want to get back to these clips because they're very important. Back in September of 2021, Aiden appeared via Zoom for a pretrial hearing. Many of you may remember this. In the video, he's in a room, you know, like one of those detention rooms, and he's looking around. He looks confused, disoriented. He's rocking, um, and he keeps talking about demons taking his soul. Let's play this clip. Why am I here? I just want to talk to my mom and dad. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? I don't want you demons. I don't want you demons take my soul. You demons want to take my soul away. So when the community saw this video, there was a lot of um, 
very realistic questions about what was his mental capacity and his condition at the time. And did he know what was going on? Some people accused him of acting. There was definitely a lot going on. He for sure looked very disturbed. I mean, I I think that is, we could all agree with that. So now I want to show a comparison. That was Aiden in 2021, just appearing to truly be out of it. Now, take you back to this week, Aiden is back in court. He's now two years older. And the judge wanted to be clear with Aiden and kept questioning him. Aiden, are you clear-minded? Do you know what is going on? Here's a clip of that. Sir, if you'll raise your right hand, you swear or affirm the testimony that you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Yes, Your Honor. All right, sir, please state your name. Aiden Sean Fucci. Mr. Fucci, how old are you, sir? 16. How far did you go in school? Uh, to eighth grade. Are you able to read, write, speak, and understand the English language? Yes, Your Honor. Are you under the influence of any medication, drugs, or alcohol right now? Uh, yes, sir, my medication, but... What type of medication are you taking? Um, Rimrons, lithium, and Suprexa. Is that medication prescribed by a physician? Yes, sir. And does that medication assist you in your ability to understand what's happening and going on around you? Yes, sir. Have you taken that medication today as prescribed by your physician? Last night, sir. Last night. Is that when you were scheduled to take it? Yes, sir. All right. And um, is it in any way, shape, or form affecting your ability to understand what's going on here this morning? No, Your Honor. Do you feel clear-headed and clear-minded about what's going on here today? Yes, Your Honor. Have you ever been diagnosed with a mental health condition that could affect your ability to understand and comprehend what's going on today? No, I don't believe so. So, Kristen, Aiden told the judge that he was taking three medications, including lithium, which he said made it possible for him to think clearly. He denied having any mental illness. Um, It is very surprising to see a 16-year-old plead guilty to murder. I mean, I have to admit, it is really surprising. We rarely see that. I agree. And, you know, I I don't know if it's, like you said, the insurmountable amount of evidence against him in this case that led to that plea, or maybe he feels guilty. I don't know. I mean, it's clear to me that, and I watch those videos too, that there's that this child wasn't in sound mind. Um, But anyone that would stab somebody that many times is not in sound mind. And so um, like you, uh, I, I don't know what the right thing to do is when someone's 14 years old and, and commit a crime that is this heinous. Um, I do know that at least he is being held accountable for what happened and and hopefully is getting the help he needs in where he is in prison. Yeah. The last thing that he did with the judge, now remember, this is just the hearing for him to enter the plea. We don't know what his sentence is going to be yet. So the last thing... The his attorney said to the judge, Aiden needs to say something. This is what Aiden said to the court. I just want to say I plead out guilty. Uh, and I'm sorry for the Bailey family and my family. Very short statement, apologizing, taking responsibility without question. We don't see that very often in the criminal justice system. Um, I do believe that by Aiden admitting to this and avoiding the trial, because it was jury selection day, that he is definitely sparing Tristan's family a huge, painful 
ordeal, including his own family, including himself, including the community. These things don't happen in a vacuum. Um, we don't know so, what the sentencing is going to be, but he will have an opportunity to make a full statement then. But Tristan's family will have a chance to say something too. I really am curious to hear what all of you think about Aiden pleading guilty here and what you think about this decision. And did he spare the family some horrific pain? There will be justice. He will serve time. I mean, the first time that he'll even be eligible to be considered for anything is about 25 years in. So he's, and likely again, the minimum is 40 years and he's just 16 years old. So he is expected to return to court on February 23rd and we'll see what, what the sentence is. We will be following this case and his mother, his mother's case is expected to take place this year. Will isn't with us right now for our comments section, but I do want to do a shout out and a thank you to Anna Heinrich from the UK who tagged us on Instagram with the following message, which I just love to hear from all of you. And this is what Anna wrote. Oh, thank you for your podcast. I live in England and I love listening while walking my dog or riding my horse. Your voice is calming compared to the tragedy that you talk about. Thank you for being a constant over the last few years with a little heart emoji. I love to hear from all of you. Uh, please tag us on social media so we can share where and how you listen. I just, you know, Chris and I just love the idea of someone riding their horse and listening to us. <laughs> love it too. That's beautiful. <laughs> It really is, so, actually. I she's love it. right. You have a calming voice, and and it is a good way of telling these stories, these these really tragic stories. So I appreciate it as well. Oh, thank you, and thank you for all the work you all do. How can people keep up with the amount of updates that you all have? I'm a member of your Facebook page, <laughs> but, but how can people join or find you and and stay up to date? So DNA Solves Advocates is our Facebook group where we post every one of our solves. If you don't want to do that, dnasolves.com. You can search cases by region. You can search the latest cases solved at Authorum. Each one has a story of what actually happened and how we were able to help the investigation proceed. Um, you can even sign up to get emails once a week and find out what's happening. And the exciting part, Anna, is we used to solve a few of these a year, then a few a month, then a few a week. And now we're announcing, you know, a few a day and giving back answers to even more. And that's that's getting crazy. And, and I think that we're coming to a world where this is no longer extraordinary. It's ordinary to be able to actually take these cases from cold and and give an answer back to the investigators to, to help them. And it, it excites me beyond words. It really does. Oh, I know it does. I know it does. And you are all so committed and I'm so grateful for you always coming on. And you know, you always have a place here because we always want to hear the work you do. We just, we really do. So please come back soon. Say hello to everyone. Well, thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. So uh, you can find me at Anna G News. We're going to link to all those sites for Authorum so y'all can follow them. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're more than 5 million strong. You can find this episode, you know, in all of our episodes, wherever y'all get your podcasts. Sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>